1: garden church podcast
2: to the angel in the church in pergamum right these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword i know where you live where satan has his throne yet you remain true to my name You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Revelation chapter 2 to the church in Pergamum. We are in the book of Revelation, the great unveiling, looking at the seven churches in, Ephes, uh, in Asia. We just finished Smyrna and Ephesus, and they, these are specific letters written by the Apostle John to specific churches throughout Asia Minor. Each letter uh, it, to the church has a specific picture that Jesus wants them to know. Each letter has an image of the, the, the specific vision that G, uh, John had of Jesus. Um, one is the first and the last, one who holds the stars in his hands. And to Pergamum, what we see is this is the one who has the sharp double-edged sword, which is fitting because the double-edged sword was the symbol for the city of Pergamum. So each of these messages each of the messages has one major purpose. In the words of Eugene Peterson, to give spiritual direction, to help disciples of Jesus live in the world, but not of the world. That, of course, is from Eugene Peterson's commentary, pastoral commentary on the book of Revelation, Reverse Thunder. This letter, Revelation, is specific and clear, and the, the letter to the church within the letter, the Pergamum church, uh, this would have been heard and understood immediately based on those who were receiving the letter in the first place. Pergamum was facing two battles, and they were winning one, but they were unaware of the real battle going on within their city, within their church, and the famous pastor John Stott wrote, here pitched here, a pitched battle was being fought in which soldiers were not men, but ideas. Pergamum was in a battle of thought, in a battle for the mind, a battle of ideas. The church in Pergamon was like a church in New York or Silicon Valley or Washington DC or in Tokyo, Paris, Los Angeles, Long Beach. It was engaged in a battle for the mind. And as the writer of Proverbs says, as people think within themselves, so they are. As people think within themselves, so they are. And um, the famous clinical psychologist, Archibald Archibald Hart, says that the sum total of your thoughts, we are, excuse me, the sum total of our thoughts. Jesus says to this church, I will make war with the sword of my mouth. Harsh, powerful, significant warning. Why is Jesus so upset? Why is he challenging this church? Why is he going to make war with this specific church? What is at stake? Now, before we answer those questions, perhaps we we need to talk about the significance of ideas and specifically the battle of ideas. I love the movie, by Christopher Nolan, Inception. In it, there's a character played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and he has this incredible line. He says, what is the most resilient parasite? Bacteria, a virus, an intestinal worm? Ugh. He says, an idea. Resilient, highly contagious. Once an idea has taken hold of the brain, it's almost impossible to eradicate an idea that is fully formed, fully understand, uh, understood that sticks. There's a power in ideas that take over our minds. And the wrong ideas about God, about ourselves, about each other or the world will destroy us. We are in a world right now where there is a war of ideas, a battle of ideas. And within the church and outside the church, we are seeing this happen right in our midst. Now, um, within the church and outside the church, we face a battle, uh, a battle space that targets our hearts and our minds. And, and the weapons used to influence our hearts and our minds are not um, weapons we think of. They are weapons of TV programming, of newspaper articles, in the internet, blogs, and radio, podcasts, and YouTube, and social media. These are the weapons in the idea war. Now, we know this. We know that there are brands and advertisers who are influencing our daily habits and purchases. We talk about that, and it's lighthearted, and it's funny. Like, for example, here's a picture of arby's the restaurant who in 2003 or 6 i forget spent 85 million dollars on this particular ad 85 million dollars on a talking oven mitt to get you to buy a roast beef sandwich isn't that hilarious we know that there are there are companies trying to influence our habits and we know that there are narratives being pushed left and right there are ideas and ideals and a vision of the world and the afterlife that are being pressed upon everyone, whether we know it or not. This is the water we are swimming in, and it's worse than roast beef. And if you don't believe me, all you have to do is read the report from the Senate hearing that took place after the 2016 elections when Facebook discovered a Russian Facebook page that organized... um, a protest in Texas, and a different Russian-owned Facebook page was also uh, able to organize the counter-protest, excuse me, that's my phone, the um, counter-protest in the same city. So Facebook discovered through their ads that there were Russian troll farms, essentially propaganda machines used to create chaos and misinformation in the state of Texas before the elections. This is a fact. This is recorded. It's in a Senate commission hearing. We know that that's taken place, and they were able to get a fake Facebook group and another fake Facebook group, both with opposite views of the world, to have literal protests in the same city, and they were funded and supported from russia what is going on in the world now you ask how how are countries and systems and powers and people influencing the world and the answer is this and this and this memes memes had significant influence in the 2016 election whether there's all these studies on this we are being formed and shaped and our country is being moved by Facebook memes. Come on, people. Now, that kind of reminds me of something else that happened in history. One of the earliest uh, heresies that the early church had to confront was a heresy called Arianism. It was named after Arius, who was a Christian leader who lived in the th- around 300 AD in Alexandria, out in Egypt, and his heresy spread throughout the church like wildfire. And um, he essentially asserted that Jesus was not equal with God, and he essentially denied the Trinity, which is why, because of that, we have the Apostles' Creed, and the Nicene Creed. Um, and the Apostles' and Nicene Creed emphasized the unity of the Trinity and unify, became the unifying confession of faith for Christianity throughout the Roman Empire and the rest of the world. Within the first few hundred churches, this heresy that Arius started spread all over through, you'll never guess it, worship songs, he thought the fastest way I can convince people of this theology was to get them to sing catchy worship songs. It's crazy, I know. 2016, we use memes. In 300 AD, they used catchy worship her- uh, songs that were her- full of heresy. Let's just keep going for one more minute. In late 2016, Oxford Dictionary selected post-truth As the word of the year, defining it as the relating or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. In other words, we live in a world of post-truth. Objective facts have less influence than personal beliefs and emotions. Are you with me? And I want you to just think about this for a moment. We live in a moment in time where there are the most sophisticated algorithms, the most intelligent human minds working in companies, working to to influence and take our thoughts captive through attention. We live in the attention economy. In other words, there's all sorts of power out there trying to take up real estate in our mind. What takes up real estate in your mind? What occupies your thoughts? You see, the church has always been a place that has had to wrestle with the right ideas, the right ideas about God, the right ideas about humanity, the right ideas about neighbors and the world. And if we're not careful, if we don't take seriously our thoughts and ideas, we will not we, we will be swept away. I love what Dallas Willard says, and I've used this before. He says, what we place our minds on brings that reality into our lives. If we place our minds on God, the reality of God comes into our lives. Wrong ideas about God make it impossible for us to function in relationship to one another. We are not able to love one another because we do not have our minds filled with an accurate vision of God. Which is why Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against what? Against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Are you with me? What's Paul getting at? As followers of Jesus, where our mind, um, where our mind goes, what are, what we think about, the thoughts that we allow into our head, the things that we allow to occupy space or real estate in our minds, shape the reality we live in. We know this. It's It's so clear. This is what This is why our life looks the way it looks. All the ways we think uh, of ourselves in insecure terms, we live insecure in this world. And all the ways we we think we'll we'll never get ahead, we won't get ahead. The, The way our minds work shape the way we live. And I've talked about this before. Ideas influence our life and ideas influence the world. And we live in a world that's battling for ideas, much like the church. In Pergamum, let's go back to the church. Revelation chapter two, it says, to the angel in the church of Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And then it says, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even... In the days of Antipas, who most believe that Antipas was a follower of Jesus, a leader in the Pergamum church. He was a disciple of the apostle John, and he was executed in Pergamum. He was killed. He was a martyr. And it says, in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So there's an emphasis in this particular city. Jesus says, I know where you dwell. I know where you live. Remember, the the uh, the formula right now is Jesus will say, I know this and I have this against you. So in Pergamum, he knows something significant and that's specifically where they live. Where they live is testimony to their faith. He says they live where Satan's throne is. Isn't that great? That's, that's nuts. So here, Jesus is referring to Pergamum as a space where um the devil, Satan, the, the accuser, the father of lies, has his throne. Why is Pergamum the space where Satan's throne would be? Now, guys, this is not literal, okay? Please don't, don't like move as far away from that location. It's, it's in reference to something else, and here's what it's in reference to. So Pergamum is a city built on a high rock, and it was famous, And it was famous because it also had a magnificent library. It was known for its significant library in the Roman Empire. They had over 200,000 parchment scrolls. The word parchment comes from the word Pergamum. Um, So what we know is that the city was enamored with ideas and thought. It was a thinking center. It was a place of thought throughout the Roman Empire. Pergamum was the first to create a, a temple. Uh, dedicated to Caesar worship. They were the first city to, to create a temple dedicated to Caesar Augustus, where they practiced the emperor cult. Um, and the emperor cult of Rome influenced that city in significant ways. Built on the hill um, stood a host of temples and altars dedicated to various gods, but there were two primary gods that they worshiped. Asclepio, Asclepio excuse me, I'm getting really uh, good at Greek and learning these god these these names to these other deities Um, this particular god was an image worshiped as the image of a serpent and i have a coin that shows you uh, i'll put that up right now Um, and this was the god of healing and it it represented um, the god was represented by serpents and um, back in the day in pergamum there was a temple dedicated to this god where the priests would use serpents for healing services. And at night, men and women could lay on the floor in the temple, and they would lay there with an illness, hoping that one of the tamed serpents that were free to go around the temple would touch them in the middle of the night. And if they got touched... The superstition says they would be healed. And so people came from all over the world to experience healing and health from this particular God who was represented by the serpent. Also, side note, this idea of Satan's throne would be uh, understood if you have the scriptures in your mind. Remember, over 500 references in the Old Testament. John has 400 and something verses and over 500 allusions to the Old Testament. Right here is one. Who is in the Garden of Eden who is bringing a lie to the people of God, deceiving and seducing the people of God to move away from living the way of God? It's the serpent. Are you with me? The other temple, just to take note, on uh, top of the hill was a temple dedicated to the god Zeus. He was a Greek god, um, heard of him probably before. His temple was built over the city. And hit, there was an altar that jetted out over the cliff. And what they say, historians say, is that Pergamum, the citizens of Pergamum, lived under the shadow of the altar of Zeus. So it's a pagan city dedicated to lots of gods, dedicated to the gods of, of Rome and the other Greek gods. And Jesus says, Satan has his throne here. Satan is known as the father of lies. Nothing is worse in the church than to live under the influence of, of false truth and lies. You see, they're faithful to the outward battle of remaining faithful to Jesus, not participating necessarily in some of the cult practices that were in their time. So they're willing to stand for their faith and be martyred, but there was another battle going on within the church. There was a a battle that was subversive that was going to destroy the church, and Jesus himself says, I will go to battle with the church if you don't live in truth, essentially, if you don't repent, which we'll get to. Now, can we pause for a moment? Because we're talking about the world that we live in and how we live as radical disciples of Jesus in this world. But before we move on, I recognize it's easy to look at Pergamum as an example of fake um, or of churches throughout history that had to battle the idols of its age, idols of its age, idols of its day. But before we, we, we continue, I want you to do this. I want you to get that pen and paper that you prepared to have today. And I want, to, I want you to answer this question with your, by yourself or with your family or with roommates or wherever you find yourself. What are the lives that you live in? What are the lives that you live with every day? You see, I do believe that the father of lives, Satan, gives us uh, primarily three categories of distortions. See, he wants to give us a a misinformation campaign as a way to destroy our lives and our witness to the world. And it's primarily around three things. He gives us lies about God, lies about ourselves, who we are, and lies about our neighbor. I, I see when I look at the world, when I look at the church, when I look at the distortion and the, the brokenness that people carry, it's usually because they're living with lies about these things. They have an inaccurate view of God. They believe a distorted image of God lies about God. They almost always have an inaccurate view of who they are. They live with lies about themselves. Like for example, with God, um, God's angry, he's uninterested, he's mean, he's fickle. God is distant and doesn't hear my prayers. These are all lies that people believe. Inaccurate view of self would be that I'm worthless, worthless, that I'm never gonna amount to anything, that I am nothing but a pile of, of donkey stuff. That we live with insecurity, we live with fear, we talk about all these things, but we, when we read the scripture, we realize actually we're, we're not those things. We're more than that. We're beloved. We're children of God. We also have right now lies about our neighbors or the world. I, I, I think this is one of the ways that the devil creates disunity in the church. He tries to give us enemies, and, and he feeds us with lies about who they are. So can we do this? Just take two minutes, three minutes, What do you know to believe, uh, what do you know to be false? What are the things that you believe that are false, but you continue to live under anyways? What are the lives that you believe? Just write down the lives that you're living in, and we'll keep going. Okay, let's keep going in the text. Revelation chapter two, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. there's a lot going on in this text, but it's this image that John gives us is tying us to the Old Testament, this story where Balaam comes in and uh, gets the Israelites to sacrifice and eat food sacrificed to other um, gods, other deities, and, and practice sexual immorality. Now, the word Balaam means conquered people, and the Greek word is the Nicolaitans. The word Nicolaitans Also in Greek is translated to conquered people. So you have a Hebrew and you have a Greek word, a title for this type of um, community that John seems to be confronting in the first century because it's mentioned in other places as well. Both these groups most likely conquered the minds of the church with a heresy. Now, what were they teaching Essentially, we know that they are teaching two things, that it was okay for Christians to eat food that was sacrificed to idols, and it was okay for Christians to have sexual intercourse outside the bonds of one man and one woman in a covenantal marriage relationship. We see these two particular things as an issue throughout the church in the first century, that Uh, this was a New Testament struggle. People in the first century would bring an animal to the temple and offer as a sacrifice to their favorite God. And part of that animal would go to the God and the other part would be given back to the person bringing the sacrifice and they would eat that food, that animal that was sacrificed in a sacred feast with other people. And now to eat the meat uh, of that animal sacrificed to that deity was participating in the worship of that God or deity. So what do first century Christians do when, let's say, your mother-in-law, who's not a Christian, invites you over for Thursday night barbecue and uses meat that was used for ceremonial worship in uh, offering sacrifice to her favorite deity? This was not just a spiritual practice. It didn't just have spiritual implications. It had social and relational implications for how people lived in real time and place. And what do I mean by that? So often we make our faith about spiritual things, but what we don't realize is most of the New Testament is grounding our faith in practical human things, what we would experience in our daily life. And so one real struggle was what do you do when there are idols everywhere and there are social practices, parties, dinners, festivals that you just happen to do Before you were a Christian, but now you're a Christian and you don't believe in these gods and the act of eating the meat is actually highly spiritual and connected to pagan worship. And the church had to navigate through that. The second thing that they were teaching is sexual purity. Well, sexual impurity, but the church brought a new concept to the ancient world. You see, before the church existed, there wasn't an idea of sexual purity or sexual morality in fact one ancient writer said that we have prostitutes for the sake of pleasure we have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation we have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and have a faithful guardian of our household affairs in other words there was somebody for everything and that was the lens at which the first century or the ancient near near east saw the world including the greeks And so we see um, that the church saw that it wasn't proper to give your body to anyone, that there was a covenantal marriage relationship required for the power of sex and sexuality. And we know that in Acts chapter 15, there was a council of Jerusalem who considered uh, that the basic loyalty to Jesus required you to uh, not eat food sacrificed to idols and not practice sexual immorality, so we see this in the Bible. It's the direct opposition to the Balaamite or the Nicolaitans and their teaching. Because what you have to understand is for the Jew, uh, to eat and to drink at someone's table created a bond of mutual loyalty. And it's, it symbolized, actual meal symbolized covenant, And the Gentiles held a similar view. When a meal was held in honor of a God, it was believed that the God, that God itself was a guest at the table when you ate. And so there was a special bond formed between the people gathering to eat the meal together, between the the people there and the God that they were worshiping. So to eat meat sacrificed to idols meant forming a bond with the God that was represented by the idol. Ah, said the Nicolaitans of their day, or what I would like to say, cultural Christianity. Idols are nothing, right? First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 19, there are no such thing as that. There is no God in the wood or the stone. So how could anyone be forming a a bond with another God that's not found in the wood or the stone. There's only one true God, and that God is Jesus. There's no God in the products I consume or the media I digest or the constant pursuit of happiness and wealth and power. There's only Jesus. Great question. But in the New Testament, the answer is you're right. Wood is wood. Stone is stone. Instagram is Instagram. Amazon is Amazon. Those genes that you have are those genes But what you don't understand is the meat sacrificed at the feast and later sold in the market is not just meat. What you fail to understand is that when you eat at the table in an idolatrous banquet, uh, something spiritual is going on. Yes, an idol is nothing, but everything is spiritual and there is no neutrality in this world. Behind the idol associated with the idol lurks the presence of authority of unseen spiritual realities that Paul will say are demons. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20, the New Testament does not present eating of meat offered to idols as a neutral act. Idols worshipped, idol worship opens the worshiper up to unseen realms. Idols, of course, are not made only of wood and stone. They are made of cultural values, of political agendas, of lifestyles, of corporate ethos, and even religious movements. Let me say that again. Idols are made of cultural values, of political agendas, of lifestyle, corporate ethos, and even religious movements. What he's saying is this is not a neutral thing. When we participate in the world, there are spiritual realities forming us in the world. We have to understand that that's what's going on. Revelation chapter two, it continues and it says, repent, repent. Therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the, some of the hidden manna to you. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Jesus says repent, which is the Greek word for change one's mind. Jesus' invitation to the the church that's in the battle of ideas, in a world of of war of ideas and and a cultural war of ideas, if if you will. He says, repent, literally means change one's mind. Otherwise, he will fight against them. If the church doesn't change its mind, and live with truth, who is living. Jesus is the truth. Jesus will pick up his double-edged sword, which is his mouth, and will fight against the lies within the truth. Why? Because Jesus is truth. There's no tolerance for non-truth. John chapter eight says this, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free And I would like to say the cultural Christianity translation says, then you will know the post-truth and the post-truth will make you feel good about yourself and your personal decisions. You see, Jesus in this, this, this letter is in a battle. He's seen with this vision. Um, John sees him in this vision as, as a warrior. Jesus is in a battle. He, in the image he has is Jesus with a sword. He is battling for truth. He is in a battle for the truth. He is in a battle for the witness of the church, that the church must recognize what battle it's really in. It's not just a battle against the world. It's a battle of corruption from within. And the church of Jesus Christ is to be an inclusive community. In that sense, everyone is welcome, Jews and Gentiles, free and slave and male and female. Everyone's welcome into the church, but the church is not to be inclusive of all ideas. The church is not to be inclusive of all ideas, all of the presuppositions, all the social and spiritual persuasions, all are welcome, yes, but all of us, all of us are called to be under the head of the church. Jesus, to change our minds, to repent, to submit our thinking to the thinking of Jesus, to have the mind of Christ. Paul will say, brothers brothers and sisters in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, I think this is a serious thing. I'm so passionate about this. I'm impassioned by this text. Jesus will say um, he will give hidden manna to the church who is victorious and he will uh, give a white stone with a new name written on it, which was a common practice. A a covenant was made between two people where they would write on a white stone their names and give their name to the other person. So it's like Jesus saying he's gonna give us this covenantal thing where he gives us his name to hold on to, and he carries our name. That's the reward of the church who repents and changes its mind and doesn't fall prey to heresy or false teachings or false theology, or, or the way of culture in the church. And I would like to suggest that if Jesus came to talk to our church, to talk to our current state of the church in the West, he would have some things to say about our ideas, about God, about ourselves, about him, uh, the church, and about life. He would be flipping tables because there would be tables filled with lies within the church. Lies about sexual immorality and impurity. Lies about lust and greed. Lies about gossiping, slander. Lies about our consumerism and our, our rage and anger. Lies about our syncretism. The way our Christian culture has married the American culture, which is filled with self-help and consumerism, materialism, and it's, it's pleasure-driven and narcissistic, and it's, it's part of the economic empire that we all live in. Christianity in the U.S. looks a lot like America. And if America, quote unquote, is a Christian nation, the nation should look a lot more like Jesus. But it doesn't. It looks like a a Christian culture. It looks like a, a community that's been subverted by the wrong ideas. You see, we've been wrapping human freedom and sexual freedom and self focused spirituality. We've been wrapping all of that in the language of the gospel. And as a result, it has shut down the power of the church as a witness to the ends of the earth. And it's become impotent. It's because the church has been satisfied with living a lie. But the true church will refuse to live that lie any longer. The true church will follow Jesus with devotion, and it will require followers of Jesus to give up their ideas about God, about identity, about community, about the nation, and about life, and it will rebuild all of that stuff around the way of Jesus, around his way and his truth. So the warning is, if you don't repent, if you don't change your mind, he's gonna battle against the church. And this is written to Pergamum, who uh, was dealing with all sorts of issues. So brothers and sisters, can I invite you to first repent? (laughs) Let's repent, repent. There's so many things in the Bible that really are black and white. There's no gray area but we love to just mix it with our personal feelings and preferences. We can't live this way anymore. We must become people who live out the truth of Jesus. Otherwise, we'll continue to walk blind. The second thing, can we just take our thoughts captive? Take our thoughts and our emotions captive and and submit them to um, Christ. Submit them to his lordship and bring them under his lordship. I know that the world is saying that your feelings are the world and that's where you should, you should live your best life based on how you feel. But that is not what we do as Christians. We take our thoughts captives. We take our emotions captive that tell us one thing and we submit them to the Lordship of Jesus. We come under the word of God and we live out his way. We must learn to do this. We have to figure this out. We have to figure out how to engage in culture with not being completely contaminated or distorted by its philosophy and way of life. You aren't what you feel. You aren't what you buy. You are made in the image of the creator of the universe, designed and destined to rule with him. And you are his child and you are blessed and you are loved and you are wrapped in his identity, you are hidden in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you are more than a conqueror. Nothing you ever do will be be able to separate you from God's love, that you are saved, you are forgiven, you are his poem, his masterpiece, you are all of these things. Stop settling with what people think of you on your social media. There's so much here. Take your thoughts and take your emotions captive. And lastly, guys, we got to replace our false belief with truth. Search for truth. Jesus is the truth. Look for him. In the world look for him in the scriptures search for what is real and true don't be persuaded by memes for the love or by catchy songs be the church that is grounded in the word of god grounded in truth because we have a battle going on and it is so subversive it is it is going to push us off the edge and we must challenge the way we think we must challenge the ideas we believe and we must go to the word and we must live out the truth. We must because Jesus is real. He's alive and he is the victorious king, and we come under his lordship. So, brothers and sisters, I don't know what lies you wrote down on that piece of paper. I have a long list of lies. And at the end of Romans, I love what um, Paul says to the church. He says to the church in Rome that soon, let me find it. Um, I wasn't going to say this, but I'm just going to go with it. He says something about soon the f- father of lies will be trampled on our feet. Is that Romans? Okay, I can't find it. Jesus says at the end, um, or Paul writes at the end of Rome, soon the fa- basically the lies that we believe will be trampled on our feet. Satan will be trampled under our feet. We'll put that text up in a second. I'm going live, so we're just going to let this go. But brothers and sisters, we need, to, we need to take those lies and write them at the bottom of our shoes and begin to live in truth. Replace the false narratives with truth and begin to take your thoughts and your your emotions captive and we need to repent. We need to change our mind. The world is not neutral. Let's live as a subversive, powerful witness of the resurrected Jesus Christ.
1: Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit Garden.Church.
3: thoughts we need your spirit oh God to stir up the fire of love in our hearts we need your spirit